welcome back to another exciting episode of Open Swim. You're here with your hosts, Hallie Bram Kogelschatz, Eric Kogelschatz, Brian Andrew Jasinski, Jennifer Cho Salas, and Alex Knight. So today in this season of gifting, we also want to talk a little bit about giving. And we're going to talk a little bit about something that's near and dear to our hearts, which is an organization here in Greater Cleveland called Local Cleveland. But before we get into that, we want to talk about why it even matters that you should give. It is something that people feel on some level compelled to do, at least most of us. It really shows there are 1.5 million total nonprofits in the United States. And when you take a look at those nonprofits, what you see is that you can donate to a variety of different causes and you can find something that matters to you. What's actually interesting to think about is that half of nonprofits actually have less than a million dollars in total revenue. So there's lots of opportunity there to really make an impact. And when you take a look at where that revenue is coming from, approximately 70% comes from individuals and about 15% comes from foundations, just to kind of have a benchmark. And 82% of charitable giving actually comes from only 10% of donors because that average gift is right around that $50 mark. So there are a lot of people that actually are participating just at a smaller level. And it's great to see actually, because truly every dollar counts. There's a lot of different ways that you can get involved and it doesn't mean that you have to be a major donor. One of the reasons we wanted to talk about this today is that we're here in December and last month Shark and Minnow participated in Giving Tuesday. And just as a little bit of background, every year Shark and Minnow donates of ourselves, of our time on Giving Tuesday. And we have our Giving Tuesday Shark Attack where we open up a competition for nonprofits to apply with a very specific communications-based challenge. And as a team, we decide where we can have the greatest impact on a nonprofit. This year, we partnered with um, a nonprofit here in the Northeast Ohio area called HFLA, and we'll talk a little bit about them later. But we did have the opportunity to explore some of their immediate communications and fundraising-based needs, and it was a really worthwhile experience. Actually, the organization that we're here to speak with today, Global Cleveland, in some ways we met through Giving Tuesday and our annual shark attack. It's an appropriate kind of look back at our relationship, which began last year, and some of the things we learned there and how they made such a great impact on us. So without further ado, I want to introduce our friends and colleagues from last year's Giving Tuesday, Global Cleveland. So we have here in studio with us, Joe Simperman. Great to be with you. And Jasmine Long. Hi. Thanks again for being here with us. too much further. Can you guys talk a little bit about Global Cleveland and what the organization is for anybody out there that hasn't had the pleasure of getting to know you yet? Well, thanks for having us. It's great to be with you here on this awesome podcast. Global Cleveland is an organization that is intending to attract, welcome, and invite international newcomers to Greater Cleveland in order to create a better economic prosperity for everybody. That's our mission statement. We live it. We breathe it. We have programming that helps us do it. Uh, but it's really an organization that's uniquely uh, poised to do what it can to welcome immigrants, to welcome refugees, to welcome newcomers, secondary migrants, folks who are trailing spouses. And, you know, ultimately, um, you know, the, the people we work with, we don't ask to see their paper. 
right? These are people who are coming from all walks of life. The one thing they have in common is that they were born abroad. Can you tell us a little bit about when the organization was founded and where you are today? Absolutely. Our organization was founded in 2011 um, by a group of very committed community leaders who really wanted to figure out how do we help stop Cleveland's population decline. And what we have been able to grow to now is an organization that is led with demographic research from researcher Richie Paparinen, understanding that what we do to be able to help people move to Greater Cleveland is to just create a welcoming environment. You know, we can't go out and do an ad campaign and make people want to move to the city, but what we can do is make the international newcomers who are here feel welcome, feel that they have a community, and then they tell their friends, and that's that secondary migration piece that Joe's talking about. So we've really evolved a lot over the last six years, but I think we're in the most well-positioned um, now that we've ever been in. Can you talk to me about what success looks like for Global Cleveland? You know, what are some of the things that you're working towards? Well, one of the things I think we are trying to constantly convey to people is that the solution, the cure, the hope, the dream, whatever you want to call it in terms of creating a better tomorrow is actually very, very present today. Um, the people who are coming here are the greatest ambassadors that we have to encourage more people to come. So whether it's the refugees that are coming, you know, last year we had about 1,200 people. This year, because some of the changes in federal policy, we're going to be closer to 400. Over the last 10, 12 years, we've probably had close to 12,000 international students, anywhere between 6,500, 7,500 people. And then the work that Jasmine's really pioneering, and it's a national story for the way that she's doing it with the in the space of naturalization. Last year, we welcomed about 2,500 new citizens to the United States in Cleveland. Uh, this year, that number is going to be closer to 33,300. Um, and that's just you know ways in which we think is successful. It's really a matter of changing uh, the environment, exactly as Jasmine said, in terms of making people feel more welcome. And Jasmine, why does this matter to Greater Cleveland? You know, what kind of benefit does this have to the area? Thank you. You must have been reading my mind. Uh, <laughs> the reason that I focus on naturalization so much is that we know that it's a true way to advance financial inclusion and economic opportunity for the immigrants who become naturalized. And what that does is help to create a stronger tax base for our community. So if you become a citizen, you're 19% more likely to buy a home. Those taxes come mm. right back to the city you're 52% more likely to have a bank account. So there are real economic impacts uh, for just having immigrants in our community, but there's a real cultural vibrancy that's created when they become citizens. So that's why it's one of my biggest pushes. We work a lot with international students. Team Neil has recognized that the talent gap is our biggest challenge facing Northeast Ohio. A lot of these international students have the computer science, engineering background to fill some of these jobs that are unfilled. So there's really um, benefits that impact our entire community. When people think immigrant or refugee, they have this like picture in their mind. Can you give us a little bit of a better understanding of the types of people that you're seeing come to Cleveland? Are there trends that you're recognizing? People don't need to look that far in Cleveland to realize what a newcomer looks like. For some people, it could be grandparent. For other people, it could be you know a classmate. It could be a teacher. Uh, it could be a physician. It could be whatever. The trends are interesting because while you know the numbers may be changing now in terms of the number of refugees that come in or the number of people that are coming here, you know from our southern border are changing as well. There are currently in the United States over 60 million people who were born in another country, and what I would say for Cleveland and Northeast Ohio is that you know we're a place that's very livable. We're a place that's very welcoming. Uh, we're a place that isn't something where, you know, you would think was going to be really hot one day and not the next day. We continue to kind of be evolutionary in, in the way that we're welcoming people. And I think that more and more people are realizing that, you know, Chicago, L.A., New York City, San Francisco, those are great. It'd be really nice if I could afford a house that was bigger than my shoebox. 
So we tend to really sell Cleveland, and we do it with the international folks, and we're hoping to be able to do it now with some of our expat communities and with the universities and other folks who are already doing it. But really what it is is making the um, latent blatant and making something very intentional. Just putting a, a face behind some of these stories in terms of breakdown of demographics, where are some of the, these international residents coming from? In terms of refugees, we see people coming from the Congo, um, Burma. We have ne a huge Nepalese community here. We have a huge Somali Bantu community. We have a lot of people coming from Afghanistan and Iraq. I mean, we just have people coming from all over. And in terms of like the general immigrant community, Cleveland is home to 117 different ethnic groups. Um, so that's when it becomes very hard to put a face. We have so much talent. We have Indian uh, doctors at the Cleveland Clinic, Syrian doctors at the Cleveland Clinic. We have such a diverse group of international students who are coming. And I think it's important to note that 90% of international students who come do not receive a scholarship to the university that they attend. They pay full freight. And we often used to think of that as that means, okay, they come from these rich families, but now we're starting to see there are families and villages who will raise money so that one student can go. Like That's the one person from their town that they've said, we see something in you and we want you to go to the United States and gain prosperity. So there's a lot of diversity um, in terms of who is, who's coming, why they're coming, and how they're coming. That's amazing. You mentioned economic impact. And you know, I'm curious if you can talk about some of the different industries that are really benefiting from talent that's coming from other places. Sure. You know, I, we obviously you know this is a very uh a human table that we're at right now um and you know people you have a lot of different uh, feelings when you use words like newcomer refugee immigrant the truth of the matter is this our economic prosperity absolutely depends on welcoming newcomers our population is not growing to the point where we can sustain um, the quality of life that we have currently and i've heard you know different economic professors say things like our um, economy is 60 years ahead of our educational system and 50 years ahead of our immigration system. But the sectors where we see a huge impact and where we think a lot of difference can be made in Northeast Ohio are healthcare, IT tech, and finance, real estate law, in hospitality, manufacturing, in higher education and media, we see it all the time. And those are the sectors that have been identified by, by people like Jobs Ohio, by the governor's office, by our mayor and our county executive, because those are places where you have a talent gap. As Jasmine said, you know, from Team Neo to our governor to you know other folks, the number one threat to our economic prosperity in Ohio is not Environmental Protection Agency, is not the Affordable Care Act, it's not even the overregulation of the last five presidential administrations, it's the fact that we don't have enough people to do the work that we have at hand. And what we're saying is we have a way to fix that. We've got people who are coming in that if we were more welcoming and more accommodating, we could actually fulfill some of those issues that, that we have. And it's something that would make people who were born here more successful. The other thing I think is really interesting, and I've heard your team say a few times, is that it's not just that people want to come here and be a cog in a wheel. You know, there are a lot of people who want to come here and found companies, you right. know, and I've heard the stat thrown around about four to 500. You know, can you talk to us a little bit about what that stat is and, and what we're really looking at? Yeah, if you didn't have immigrants, the Fortune 500 would be the Fortune 247. Um, you know, and you look at places like the Maniahuja Center. Well, Maniahuja is a person. He happens to have been born in a country far away from Cleveland, Ohio, and yet his world-class healthcare at university hospitals that he supports is enabling a lot of people to, to live and to survive and to have a great life. 
You know, you look at people like Dr. Hiroyuki Fujita, who is from Tokyo, who came to Case Western and started a, a small company called QED. He currently employs 200 people. Of those 200 people, 20% were born in another country. Mm. What does that mean? The other 80% were born in the United States. Here is a man, not born here, creating jobs for many, many people who live here. And that story is told over and over again. It's the story of America. It's certainly the story of Cleveland. And what we want people to realize is that we do better economically when we're more welcoming, and we think there are a lot of pathways for us to get there. As you welcome these individuals into the city, there's two questions I have. One of them being, you have mentioned before to us that it is known throughout these communities to come to Cleveland because of Cleveland's accommodating and welcoming nature. And also, how then, in turn, do these immigrants find Global Cleveland? It's really interesting. I think a lot of times they come to us through referrals because we are so ingrained in the community. We're a part of a lot of collaborations and networks that anyone who would touch an international newcomer, they're aware of Global Cleveland. And we have our information in a lot of different locations. And I think it stands out because you, you will always see that welcome in different languages. So they'll automatically know, okay, this is something of interest. Or if you search anything international in Cleveland, we're usually the first website to pop up. And so we get a lot of people calling and or coming to our office because they've heard about us. You know, we go to all the student fairs for the international students. And so we try to get ingrained in the community so that they know that we are here as a resource for them. And our main role is because we're not a direct service provider, we always try to make sure that we are tied in with the organizations that they would be able to get direct services from and that we are helping them have culturally, you know, competent, culturally relevant information and materials and and accurate information to to share. Because a lot of times what people want to know is about immigration status kind of questions. And so we make sure to get them to trusted lawyers who will not take advantage of them and who will be able to help them with their uh, cases. So you're starting to get into the impact that you're able to have for the people that you serve. What are some things that you've been able to do in terms of things that are beneficial to people coming here, but also, you know, have an impact on our community? Well, I think the fact that we exist is is helpful to people who are, are new. Knowing a lot of people who came here from another country, just knowing that there's a resource out there that was established intentionally to welcome people is a big deal. It's also our board. We have a really great board with a lot of people who employ a lot of people, who know a lot of people who do. And our work to try to figure out, you know, if somebody needs that, how do they do that? You know, Jasmine referenced our 117 different cultural groups that are in the city of Cleveland. Every one of them has an affinity group, a social club, a, a hall, you know, a temple, a mosque, a church. And we're constantly connecting people. We set the table to say, you know, we, we did it the other day. There was somebody who came in who uh, moved here from another city. She's Ethiopian. She works for Key Bank. And she didn't realize the incredibly vibrant Ethiopian community that we have in Cleveland. Well, why that's important to us is this. People come and go for different reasons. We know they come for a relationship. We know they come for a job. We know they come for a place that they want to call home. And our goal is through, whether it's the Friends of Global Cleveland, which is a group that we started, which is young international millennial professionals who are born abroad, uh, who network with each other, and their uh, network continues to grow, or something uh, that we're working on with our Global Employer Summit, where you bring talent to the table with employers who are actually looking to hire, and you share with people, these are regular people, these are people who would interview who do well in your culture. It really is just a, a, an attempt over and over again to introduce people because you know, Cleveland takes over when that happens. People get to know each other, they realize they have more in common than they don't, and if what people are looking for is good people to fulfill roles that are currently vacant, uh, then we have people who are coming here from all over the world who can do that, and then buy a home. 
and start a family and send their kids to our schools. Joe, myself, and my colleagues, we spend a lot of time in the community just trying to educate about who immigrants are, you know. They're not coming to steal jobs. They're not coming here to attack your family or anything like that. You know, we hear a lot of things every day. And and sometimes it's easy to say, oh my God, that's just irrational. But because we understand that these are very real fears that people have, we have to go into these situations with a level of kindness, humility, and just talk to people like on a values-based system. And so I think that's one of the greatest things that we do for the international newcomer, which helps to create that welcoming community we want to see, is to educate Greater Cleveland about who's actually coming into our community and their backgrounds and their challenges. And I think that that we've seen some great advances in that. So there's a great example of a conversation that happened about a year and a half ago when um, Senator Sherrod Brown called together all of the Muslim leadership in Northeast Ohio to have a real conversation about Islamophobia, about uh, issues that the Muslim community was experiencing. And it was really interesting because the people who were there uh, in the room were leaders and folks who affected uh, the lives of thousands of people. And in the middle of the conversation, there's a gentleman who stood up and said, my biggest issue in Northeast Ohio is that the police of the city of Cleveland hate me. And they hate my people and they don't want us here. Now, I know that to be fundamentally, factually, and intrinsically untrue. It didn't matter because this individual, Abdenor, had a very specific viewpoint that clearly he had a reason for what he was saying. So Senator Brown said, you know, go talk to him. The imam was there. We went over. And what we came to find out was that there's a mosque on uh, West 82nd and Detroit that was experiencing a lot of ticketing. And when we started to pull the tape and talk to the police officers who were there, what was happening was that during the call to prayer, a rush hour lane was being quadruply parked. So the police officers who had taken photographs and had done their due diligence were saying the reason that people are getting tickets is because we don't want you to die. You know, we can't get a fire engine anywhere near you if you guys are, are continuing to do this. All of a sudden, the imam and Abdenor were like, we didn't realize that. People were telling us that they were parked legally and they were getting ticketed and towed. Came to find out that they didn't have a great relationship with their local development corporation, which is one of the best in the city, even though they had reached out to them over and over again. Councilman Zone had been trying really hard to work with them. And they, there had been you know, no, just a miscommunication. And because of that one comment, we had this big meeting. Now parking is at a, um, an off-street parking lot. Police officers are welcome in the mosque. There's such an interaction with the community. And the Somali Bantus, who make up the majority of the mosque, said, can Global Cleveland help us to become more civically engaged? We want to know who our police officers are. If we have a problem with human services, how do we figure that out? You know, how do we talk to people at the city? You know, everyone from the mayor to the person, you know, who makes sure that the, the water pipes are running appropriately. And what we started is a series of town halls with the Somali Bantu community to basically bring the people who are leading Cleveland there. And I'll tell you right now that we're not going to have to be there longer than six more months. They're, they're so quickly acclimating to, you know, figuring out uh, the people on their own, how to reach out to them. You know, we have these meetings in the basement of their community center where there's 150 people, four different translators. The problem is that nobody wants to leave when the meeting's over because community is growing. What does that mean? That means that more Somali Bantus are starting to say Cleveland's for us. They take care of us. They want us to be here. There's now a Somali-American Cleveland police officer who reaches out to this community. I mean, these are if you want your community to be more, have more people living in more houses and, and grow, 
These are the things you you have to do. You know, there's all these nifty tricks like tax abatement and TIFFs and let's have another brochure and, you know, Cleveland's the Rock Hall. That's great. But when people realize that the people who are in the community care about them and want them to grow and there's a sense of mutual empowerment where the people are learning from the Somali Bantu community who are presenting and they're realizing, you know, there's things that I could do differently. And the Somali Bantu community is realizing these are people that I could work with you start to have a situation where in 10 years, you are on 60 Minutes and people are like, Cleveland, Ohio, the home of the largest Somali Bantu community in the world. We always let people know that the truth is out there. Um, you know, we can show you the, the stacks of metrics on the economy. You know, the fact that people who are coming here from other countries oftentimes have 14 times the amount of security vetting uh, than some people in our community do, and you wish they would. Um, we have a, a real... Um, uh, ability to bring those people uh, together. We had a situation uh, that happened uh, in the Dream neighborhood, the neighborhood that's being built around Thomas Jefferson School, where in the conveyance of the fact that a lot of people were going to be coming uh, to the neighborhood and buying these houses who happen to speak English as a second language, who were born in another country, but who would be super neighbors and quiet at night and have a better garden than any of us could ever dream of without uh, a house that had chip paint. Um, we would have these conversations in people's basements and living rooms and garages where they would say things to us like, why would you want to move Osama bin Laden's cousin next door to me? You know, the, the thing that I love the most about Cleveland is that people are very honest about their fears and they're very um, open to talking about it. And the only way we're going to get past this false rhetoric and, and incredibly nationally damaging uh, conversation about people taking jobs that are a threat to us is when people get to know them. You know, and I see that over and over again when those relationships are formed, when people have a friendship. And I'm going to share something, and this is my own personal bias and my prejudice, and I'm going to own it here on this podcast very publicly. Jasmine organized a super fantastic um, uh, um, swearing-in ceremony at the City Club. So the City Club is looking for something to do on Constitution Day. Jasmine got a speaker here from New York City, from mayor, the mayor's office. We organized a swearing-in ceremony through her contacts through the federal courthouse. We built the room up. It was awesome. I think City Club was happy with it. Um, we had this guy in a Harley jacket and the handlebar mustache, and he was bald, and he had tattoos, and he's walking around. And I was like, oh, great. And I went up to him, and I said, um, sir, can I help you? He said, I'm here with my neighbor, Tracy. She is from Thailand. She's the best neighbor I ever had. She asked me to be here for her swearing-in ceremony. People couldn't keep me away if they tried to. You know, and I'm sitting there like, you're an idiot, Joe. Like, you immediately <laughs> assume this guy was there to protest or to cause a ruckus, right? Because I made a stereotype, you know, angry white man, you know, somebody who wouldn't support this. Well, I don't know who he voted for. I don't know what he thought before. But Tracy's his neighbor. And I could tell, like, that bond. And she loved him. And she talked about how he helped her when she was learning English. That needs to happen across our country 250 million times. Mm -hmm. And, and the, 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 the issue is that when people buy into that sense of people are the other, those relationships don't get formed. We try to change that conversation. And that's, like, a perfect example of... You know, I think it's a struggle for us to say no to meetings sometimes because you never know which meeting is going to be that meeting that really brings out something meaningful like 
these conversations that we've been able to have. And I remember, but I think about that all the time with you guys, because (laughs) it's like, where do you, where do you draw the line? And I think that's, what's so impressive about you is that you don't. And with such a, like a, a small but efficient staff, um, you're really making your mark and, and making a true difference because, you know, what you've talked about is, you know, you want to get in there and you want to help to facilitate success, but in a way that can be sustained, you know, without you, without Global Cleveland in the long run, um, so that there's ownership by the communities that, that we all live in. We talk about it all the time. It's the indispensable obsolescence, right? So, the, like, let's just be straight up here and, and you know, no... no um, no harm, no foul on Truth Friday. There's no other organization in Cleveland that's doing what we're doing, right? We don't organize speeches, okay? We're not here for policy debates. We pay attention to that. It's important for the people we serve. Our goal is to figure out how we take care of the people who are coming here so that more people can come. And when you think about the power of the word yes and the power of the word no, the power of the word no. It's a great film that was just released uh, called uh, No Refuge, story of Anne Frank's family. Except it's not the story of Anne Frank when she was in hiding. It's the story of the hundreds of letters that her father wrote that were recently discovered to the Department of State asking to come to the United States. Here is a story of no, 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 no. And just one yes, the world would have been different. Thankfully, we wouldn't have known who Anne Frank was because we wouldn't have had to have discovered her diary to know the tragedy and the horror of what humanity can do to each other. She would have been a phenomenal professor probably living in Boston. So when we think about how we have to say yes, right? Jasmine said yes uh, a few uh, months ago to a conversation with our friends from uh, Harvard University. They wanted to study the dream neighborhood in Cleveland and the impact of immigrants and newcomers on the housing market and the impact of Thomas Jefferson International Newcomer Academy in a neighborhood and how that can work. She said, yes, she was invited to go speak to this class at Harvard. Well, what does that do? It starts to change people's trajectory. Newcomers are not charities. Newcomers are not causes that you bleed for. Newcomers are people who are the building blocks of your nation, who are going to be why your children have better health care than you do. Looking down on empty streets, all she can see are the dreams all made soft, the dreams made all of the buildings, all of the cars were once just a dream in somebody's head. Jasmine, I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about Thomas Jefferson. Maybe two years ago, Global Cleveland was formally introduced to Thomas Jefferson International Newcomers Academy. And it's the only English language immersion school um, that we have found in the country. And it's a very unique model where the students, anyone who comes to Cleveland and they are recognized as needing ESL, they go to Thomas Jefferson. They have the opportunity to go to the school for two years, and then after two years, they are kind of cycled out, and then they can go to any school within their neighborhood, or we have school choice, they can go to any school that they'd like to go to. What is unique about the school is that, so for instance, last year they started at 600, and I want to say the school finished at 990. So it's a school that just grows exponentially over the course of the year. And, you know, we'll have people say to us, there are 900 children in need of language services, and the answer is yes. You know, if we have 1,100 refugees coming into the community or we have people coming from Puerto Rico for different issues, many people are coming with three and four children. So those kids do need a place to go to school, and that school is Thomas Jefferson. And I just 
absolutely love working with them. These are wonderful students who are learning English and learning Cleveland at the same time. And we're really engaged with the school because we see their parents as a pathway, right? You know, after four years and nine months, if they're a refugee, then that family is eligible to start the naturalization process. And we really want to get them connected. They might need job opportunities. They might need entrepreneurship assistance. So we really want to get into that school to be a resource for the parents. And so very excited to be a part of that school. We've helped them get several after-school programs instituted. We're going to help the Cleveland Food Bank get into the school. We're working very hard uh, to make sure that they have resources to not only learn English, but to be thriving citizens in our community. Can you talk to us a little bit more about what makes Thomas Jefferson a school that you are trying to model? Sure. It's a great question. Thank you. Um, The folks at Thomas Jefferson, the teachers there, are highly dedicated. Um, The school itself currently has about 40 uh, different nations represented. There's about 25 different languages that are being spoken. And uh, the school itself is an example of what happens when newcomers come to a community and the energy that they put into uh, becoming English proficient. The neighborhood itself is filled with abandoned houses, and you know there's a lot of uh, need there, but it happens to be in the middle of the Gordon Square Arts District in Ohio City and Tremont in the Metro Hospital campus. And we think a lot of those families are going to start to move into those communities. We're already seeing it through the incredible leadership of Metro West, through the Gordon Square Arts District. Here you have a school that's transforming the neighborhood that it's in. Here you have a school whose students, uh, two years after they learn English, and their parents are learning as well and they're working, are actually buying a house and they're living there. And I think what you're going to have in a few years is a story of a neighborhood that a lot of people gave up on, except for the people who live there, the native-born Clevelanders who live there except it took a lot of other people moving in there who happen to be here from other places to show people how great this place really was. And it's a really incredible story, mostly because oftentimes you look at uh, newcomers or immigrants or refugees as people who are in need of things. And here, the city of Cleveland is in need of people to take a neighborhood and reinvigorate it. And it's happening through the, the lens of people who were born in other countries. So you've talked a lot about the connections that you're able to make in the community and how you're trying to like show people what success really looks like. I know that you've actually taken people into Thomas Jefferson. Can you talk to us about some of their reactions? Yeah, we. I, I'll, I want Jasmine to weigh in on this too, but it's a lot. Um, you cannot go into a place like this knowing that the kids that are there, some of whom have seen the worst things that humanity can can do to itself and to each other. You know, these are kids who walked across Libya, right? These are kids who know very well what ISIS is because family members have died at their hands, right? These are these are people who came through Congo or Ukraine where, you know, war rages and people are trying to figure out, you know, how they can survive and live, let alone send their kids to school. We had a person who we were working with who was pretty special and he was here from Turkey and he was very um, interested in the school. And when he went into Miss Roach's classroom, she teaches third grade, uh, Ms. Roach found out that he was in uh, he was uh, Turkish, and she said, oh, we have a girl who grew up in the Syrian-Turkish border. So he started talking to her, and they realized that they had both grown up in the same village. And here's this person who's working in Turkey, who's now in Cleveland, uh, through the generosity of the Cleveland Foundation and the German Marshall Fund, meeting a girl who probably was a friend with one of his younger brothers or sisters. And, you know, here on West 46th and Clark, in the heart of Cleveland, in the heart of the dream neighborhood, it just shows how absolutely proximate the the world is and how we have such an incredible opportunity if we open ourselves up to this school in terms of what the world is bringing here. This portrait that you guys are painting is beautiful because it really highlights the idea that these immigrants and refugees come here with the human capital to change our community. They're, They're ambitious. They have determination. They have courage. They're here to fuel innovation, creativity. 
they're growing our American economy. How can we get more corporations to hire them, to give them the jobs? What is the obstacle that they're experiencing? Because from our perspective, it's an easy answer. But I'm sure you've ran into this where these corporations say, oh, I don't want to deal with X, Y, Z. Can you tell us a bit about what those are? Absolutely. So oftentimes people think it's too expensive to hire the international talent. And oftentimes people won't even realize. So refugees are actually work visa authorized. So they don't even have to do any extra paperwork for them to begin to work. But people have this misconception that it's going to cost like, you know, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 to go through the, the process of applying for a green card for an employee. And so we have to spend a lot of time one-on-one educating employers or having events and talking to them about the true and honest cost of hiring international talent. Is it more expensive to, you know, maybe pay a little bit for the visa or to have your job set on the market for three years because you can't fill it? Mm-hmm. And those are the kind of discussions that we start to have. One of the biggest struggles is that the companies who are successful with hiring refugees or hiring international students or hiring international talent, they don't want to share their stories mm-hmm. because they know they have the secret sauce. Mm-hmm. So when we, you know, we, when we find out that there are certain companies who, there's a company in, in Cleveland whose entire second shift, third shift, excuse me, is, is refugees. So their overnight shift is refugees. And we can't share their story because they don't like that to be, to be told. I mean, am I right, Joe? Yeah. And so we have to do a lot of sharing anecdotal stories without being able to actually put a company on it because people know what's working for them and they don't want to give that secret away to their competitors. So we really work hard to educate employers and that's how we started last year with our Global Employer Summit. And we're going to host another one in 2018. And that's all about educating employers about what it really means to hire international talent, whether that be the refugee, the international student, or someone who is here as a legal permanent resident with a green card. There are all differences in, in your ability to hire those individuals, and we think that it's important for companies to hear from their peers, from attorneys, and from people who have been employed about the impact that they've been able to make in the Cleveland market. What you just spoke to is something that's been striking me this whole time sitting here listening to the two of you, is that you really are not only are you is your role to welcome but it's also to educate and on two levels those who you are welcoming and those who you are asking to welcome and it, the fact that for example the employer that you said almost doesn't want to share the secret mm-hmm. it's that's such a almost a marketing dilemma because here you are it's such a success story so it's a great thing but the fact that they're not willing to share it is the cliche it's a good problem to have mm-hmm. It is. It's. It's really interesting because, you know, we started this conversation about the solution or the hope or the cure or the answer to your question is right in front of you, and you know, so often you know we hear employers and you know we have this in our literature, it's too risky to hire or it's too confusing or I don't understand it, and yet if people take the time, they not only have an incredible employee, but oftentimes what we hear from companies is that the international employee changes the culture of the company. Mm-hmm. Right? It forces people to think differently. They had never met someone who comes from a place you know, in, in, the, uh, in the sub-Saharan uh, part of the world. You know, Somebody who grew up in a, in a nation where Spanish was a first language. And it makes the company more rich. It makes it more um, vibrant. You know, we talk about diversity a lot. That's the, you know, the, the word of the day and how do we create a dynamic where we're more welcoming. Well, diversity isn't just important because it's right. Diversity is really important because it works. And I think more companies that realize that can understand that, you know, when you have people who were born abroad as part of your company, you're not only filling that job, you're also including somebody who could probably make the people who were born here's lives a little bit brighter. And I'll bring it full circle. So 
Joe took a meeting with a fellow and he was absolutely like, I'm not interested in international newcomers. I'm focused on Cleveland. I am not focused on helping international newcomers. But to Joe's credit, he just would not let it go. And he said, you got to come on a tour of Thomas Jefferson. And so I don't go to all of the tours at Thomas Jefferson, but whenever we're like trying to really like energize people, I go because then they think I work at the school because we know so much information about the school. <laughs> and this guy, he stayed for about an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. We could, we had somewhere to go. He wouldn't leave the school. Mm. And that also is creating an opportunity for us to bring some entrepreneurial opportunities to those students at Thomas Jefferson. So that's why we never say no to meetings. We always, you know, we go the extra mile. We always try to bring people to the school to see it because there's nothing else like it. It is the most unique experience. You find somebody who's not interested in helping international newcomers and you you let them come to that school, their tune is changed. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you a question. So let's say there's someone out there listening to this podcast. They're an employer. And they're like, this really sounds great. All right, check the box. I want to learn more. What would you say to them? How do they get involved with understanding what international talent is available to them? Absolutely. So one of the great things is we have a lot of career resources on our website. And we have a tab that is specifically for employers. And it talks you through whether you're small, manufacturing, or a major organization. It has all the resources there. And then you can always call our organization and we're happy to connect you to the right person or facilitate the the knowledge gain because it's really important for us to make sure that people understand their options. What are those digits? You can call us at 216-472-3282 and our website is www.globalcleveland.org. All right, so let's say you're not an employer, but let's say this message really resonates with you and you want to find a way to support Global Cleveland. What are the biggest things that people can do financially or otherwise to support the organization? Obviously, you know, we're a nonprofit. We're small but mighty. You know, the five of us work really hard to do what we can uh, to welcome more and more people and and create an inevitable success in Northeast Ohio. You know, we welcome contributions and donations. Um, We're always out there, you know, working with folks who are coming here, whether they're, you know, being naturalized, whether they're folks coming through the refugee side or they're people coming through the international student side. We also have a program uh, where we are asking people to become community advocates where they get training in terms of working with populations of people who are looking to naturalize. You know, I'm not kidding when I say that we're at a current point right now where we're indispensable, especially considering the climate in our country. People need to know that there's one house with the light on. They need to know that there's a place where they're they're not only safe, but they're welcome. And, you know, we're going to expect them to be part of what's next and to build it and to be the architects for our future. But it's also a matter where with the community advocates, we want them to be basically our our ambassadors out in the community talking to people what's going on. We have a training that's done through uh, Jasmine and Chris where we uh, teach people about naturalization and all the steps that go through that. But the real goal is obsolescence. You know, you know a community is is thriving when it's just part of what people know and what people come to expect where they become the best salespeople for that area. Jasmine and I had the privilege of being uh, with a young man who grew up in Collinwood this past week, Joaquin Wee. He's a great guy. Shout out, North Collinwood. And um, he moved to Seattle, and he now works for the mayor of Seattle, and he's in charge of their immigrant welcome uh, office. And he was giving me the numbers of, of the growth in Seattle that are just astounding. And, you know, somebody asked him, you know, how do you keep doing this? And one of the things he said was, you know, we expanded our staff a little bit, but we never turned down a meeting. We go to meetings that people would never think to go to because it's a way for us to talk about the stuff that's going on that they may not know. And I keep thinking to myself that if we had that army, which we do in Cleveland, they just don't know it yet, 
um, that we could really do a lot in terms of making people realize across this country that Cleveland is a place that has a lot of IQ, international quotient welcome. Well, I think that's a really good note for us to end on. Thank you guys so much for coming in today. We're so happy that you're able to be with us. And again, if you guys are looking for a way to support Global Cleveland, make sure to check them out on the web. Thanks again, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Won't you help to sing These songs of freedom Cause all I ever have Redemption songs Redemption songs Emancipate yourselves from mental slavery None but ourselves can free our minds In the spirit of our conversations today revolving around nonprofits through our recent participation in Giving Tuesday, as well as the topics of inclusion and diversity shared by our guests from Global Cleveland, my bigger boat goes to the rich field of nonprofit organizations in Northeastern Ohio dedicated to the arts. As an artist, I have been personally enriched, elevated, and empowered by institutions such as the Cleveland Museum of Art, MOCA, and my alma mater, the Cleveland Institute of Art, cooperatives like Zygote that thrive on the collaborative spirit of an artist community, and those nonprofits such as Cuyahoga Arts and Culture, and the Community Partnership for Arts and Culture, dedicated to the promotion of the cultural and economic relevance of the arts in our city. As we discussed with Joe and Jasmine, we are all one, and the experience of art is truly a language in which we are all fluent. This episode, My Bigger Boat, goes out to the season of giving. I'm very grateful that I'm now in the position to be able to afford to purchase a gift for all my family members and coworkers this holiday season. It felt great to not only receive, but to give as well. My Bigger Boat goes to the wonderful folks at Shawnee Trail Tree Farm in Hudson, Ohio. Since moving to Cleveland, my family and I have made it a tradition to chop down our own Christmas tree every year and my kids love picking out their very own Charlie Brown style Christmas tree and a big shout out to Myunghee Stribberney. Myunghee and her husband Joseph own the farm and Myunghee is so kind every year to sell me her homemade kimchi and feed my kids Korean food every time we go to chop down our tree. This episode, Eric and I are sharing our bigger boat, and it goes out to past, present, and future immigrant entrepreneurs. These entrepreneurs are responsible for the innovation that drives economic growth and job creation in America. A study by the Center for American Entrepreneurship found that over 40% of Fortune 500 companies were founded by immigrants or children of immigrants. Also, the Kauffman Foundation concluded in a study that an entrepreneur visa would create between 500,000 and 1.6 million new American jobs within 10 years. These stats illustrate the importance of immigrants for our country and why we should embrace the tired, the poor, the huddled masses yearning to breathe free. This episode of Open Swim is in support of our friends at HFLA of Northeast Ohio, a nonprofit that offers interest-free loans to responsible individuals in need. HFLA was founded in 1904 with $400 donated by Charles Ettinger, Morris Black, and their friends to help refugees settle and begin productive lives in this country. They believe that if you give someone a chance to succeed, they will pay it back and the transformation cycle will continue. To learn more, visit them online at interestfree.org. 
Open Swim is brought to you by Shark and Minnow on the web at sharkandminnow.com. On Twitter and Instagram, we are at Shark and Minnow. Technical support and audio production by Eugene Bueller. HR oversight by Marsha Ciccone. Fashion policing by Felicia Winfrey.